Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Testing, test. Oh, there we go. Fantastic. Listen, uh, my name is Giles. I've been told to say this even... This is an association with the University of Cambridge. Good. So um, I am a geneticist based at the University of Cambridge, and I study obesity. And studying obesity is always an interesting thing, okay? Genetics is not a problem in of itself. You say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a geneticist. And it's a wonderful thing. You know, my mother-in-law allowed me to marry my wife, for example. Thank you, Jill. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. Geneticist. However, when you say you study obesity, immediately you become the bad person, okay? So I'm, which is, which is an interesting thing. So I went to this college dinner, and I don't, some of you may or may not have been to Cambridge before, but the Cambridge dining thing is a very Harry Potter-esque activity, okay? It's long benches, you kind of, you, you kind of sit, and there's no seating plans. And so dinner can go good, <laughs> well, and dinner can go not so well, depending on who you sit next to, okay? So it was one of these latter evenings. So there was a guy in front of me. This is just this is a true story. Um, I dinner. He's a hirsute, big beardy Cambridge guy, and he asked, "What do you do? What do you do?" And I said, "Oh, I, I study genetics of obesity." And I'm going to use the exact tone of voice he, 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 that he actually responded to me. He says, "Do you know what your problem is?" I said, "Dude, my problem is I'm trying to have dinner, right?" He goes, <laughs> "He goes, your problem is you give fat people exactly like that, exactly that tone, exactly that intonation, an excuse." an interesting question. I think it's a philosoph philosophically, I think if you study genetics of anything, do you give anyone an excuse? But we'll focus on obesity uh, um, for, for a minute. So for the next, I'm not going to drone on forever. I think there may be questions and stuff. So for the next 35, 40 minutes or so, I'd like to consider this a rebuttal, okay, to Mr. Beardy, you know, about, about whether or not by studying genetics of obesity, I'm giving anyone an excuse at all. I would argue not. Okay, but let's, let's see whether or not I can provide a lucid, a lucid argument. So, look, I think, let's, leaving aside religion and philosophy for, three, for two seconds, okay, let's assume that there are four primal, well, three primal directives in life. Okay? We have to find and eat food. I think we've got to agree with that. For all, not just us, by the way. All the way down to single cellular muck. Okay? So, so we have to find and eat food. We have to avoid becoming food. That's bad. Okay? We have to be able to do this long enough to reproduce, and then you kind of repeat the whole process till at some point you fail at one of those positions, and then you become an XU. Okay? So I think that pretty much is, is, what, is what happens all the way through evolution that has brought us to today. Okay? So clearly, in today's particular environment, uh, it's not so dramatic. Okay? But our foraging expeditions come with their own obstacles. I work at Adam Brooks Hospital in, 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 in Cambridge, and we just had one of these um, Marks and Sparks, other supermarkets are available, Marks and Sparks sandwichy, sandwichy type places, right? Not, not the places that sell knickers and bras and things, but actually just sell sandwiches. And so I was there one day with all of the, uh, the rest of the hospital that, 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 was actually, that was actually stood there and getting my lunch. In front of me was a nurse. So she was a plus-size nurse, and she started her foraging expedition with all the best will in the world. She had herself a salad, and she had herself some yogurt. Now, if the cash till had been right there, she would have lined up, she would have paid, and she would have gone out and chalked one up for the healthy lunch. But that, of course, is not what happens, as we all know. She then has to enter the Disneyland IKEA queue to actually pay for the food. Okay? And this is where the obstacles 
begin, ladies and gentlemen, because right there they put all of the crap, okay? All of the, the candies, the crisps, the sweets, even in the hospital, and everything, everything that is there, and here, even, ostensibly for the hospital, all the chockies wrapped up to buy for grandma, etc., etc. Okay, so, now, this nurse, I was stood right, right, right behind her. This, probably, this whole process probably took 95 seconds, probably about. And she would pick up, and here's a chocolate bar, and she would look at it longingly, and then she would put it back down. Every time she did that, I went, woo, right? She did this 10 times. I counted. She did it 10 times in that 95-second period. She, and every time she put it down and every time she did not pick it up to buy it, she got to the cash till with only, the, only her salad and only her yogurt. Her guard dropped. The cashier came in with a deadly offer. Two-for-one cookies? Now, these are the type of cookies. <laughs> these are the type of cookies, the size of your face. You know how when you, for example, go to Stansted Airport or whatever airport to, to, to catch the the 5 a.m. EasyJet flight to Malaga, right? And you go there, and all you want is you want to buy your paper, your John Grisham novel. Don't, don't, don't judge. I know I'm at a literary festival. But, and then when you're there trying to pay for your, for, for your book, they then say, they, they up comes an iPad-sized Galaxy chocolate bar. Would you like this chocolate for your flight? I mean, this is a huge chocolate bar. Anyway, back, 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 back to this. So the nurse walked out at a hospital, I want to point out. Please, it's a hospital. She walked out with, for 99p, four cookies the size of my face, okay, probably 800 extra calories of cookies. Who do we blame for that scenario I just gave you? Now, I'm a human being, and I'll tell you what I did. I judged. I was going, ooh, she was weak. That's the first thing that entered my head, okay? And I'm, I'm willing to admit this, because that's the first thing that entered my head. However, on further reflection, as I was going back to the lab, I said, well, who do we blame? Should we be throwing stones at all? But if, say, we were throwing stones, who, who do we blame? Do we blame the nurse for being weak-willed, okay, for being slothful, or whatever you want, you want to say, okay, about, about the poor nurse who bought it, okay, first. Do we blame Marks and Sparks for putting the food, or at least any supermarket, this is not a Marks and Sparks-specific thing, but by the cash till? Or do we blame the government for not making Marks and Sparks not put all the food, all the food is, uh, uh, that, that is there, okay? So I think these are fair questions, and I think something to actually really think about. What does this have to do with genes? Okay, I'm going to get back that to, 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 to that in a second. Okay, there we go. Because look, when we actually think of the concept of obesity, okay, let's use the word gluttony here, for example. It is a loaded term. These are the seven deadly sins, okay? A fourth century religious construct. And I would argue that if you look at the seven, so these are sins where depending on your religious proclivity could send you to eternal damnation here, okay? So this is the, so gluttony, as I, as I just mentioned, greed, sloth. So in, in theory, three things that could end you, burn, that, that could, you, you know, you'd be burning for eternal, for, for, for eternity, has possibly something to do with your weight. And obviously, the reason this came about, in the fourth century, food was not plentiful. So if someone turned out to be perceived to be keeping food, keeping anything away from the needy, that was viewed on very dimly indeed, right? This is, this, this, is the, this is the problem. In today's environment, however, in today's world we live in, okay, are we now all sinners? Okay, so this is an interesting, another interest, this, this is what passes for entertainment in my little head uh, as, I, as, I move about, as I move about my day. Obesity is a problem, okay? So this is, this, let's just get this 
uh, um, front and center, we know it's a problem. It's all over the news. It's, 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 you cannot wake up any day on a newspaper, any documentary, you know, you know, everything that's talking about obesity. And it's a worldwide problem. It's well rehearsed that the problem in North America and Western Europe and, and where, where we are at the moment, clearly. But here's the thing, okay? This little corner of the world over here, China and the Indian subcontinent, where a third of the world's population live, okay? At the moment, I think the last count, there are about 250 million Chinese that have just entered the, what we call the middle class, the upper middle class, the people with, with um, um, expendable income. They can go on vacations and, and, and what have you. But there are 1.7 billion Chinese people, okay? Same with the, with, with, with the Indians, Asian Indians, okay? There are 1.4 billion Indians, 200 million middle class, okay? Those are the ones that with diabetes and obesity, blah, blah, blah. What happens when those two to three billion people tip into wealth, tip into prosperity, and tip into obesity? Then we have a real serious worldwide problem. We gotta fix it, okay? So, here is an obvious graph, but something to actually think about. It's an obvious graph, and therefore part of the problem. Obesity is perceived as a simple problem, okay? Now, this is energy balance, the church of you. The only way, myth number one, the only way, ladies and gentlemen, that you can gain weight is if you eat more than you burn, okay? Ergo, the only way you can lose weight is to burn more than you eat, however you work the equation. Eat more move less. Your grandma can tell you this. All of us know this. It's obvious. That is why they think I'm a bad person when I say I study the genetics of obesity. Just eat less and just move more. Here's the issue, ladies and gentlemen. I think we're asking the wrong question. Why? How we become obese, which is this, is physics. And we cannot, you know, contravene the laws of physics. We're asking the wrong question because the question we need to ask is why do some people eat more than others? Why do people behave differently in different environments? This, I want to argue, okay, is where the powerful biology, is where the powerful genetics lies, and we have to understand this. You think, well, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. Because if you're thinking in terms of physics, you have a set um, 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 of policies to try and tackle that particular physics. But if you think the problem is upstream, to do with how we behave around the environment, to do with how much we eat, then you have to rethink the policies that we have in order to try and solve obesity. Okay, so I'm going to try and, and, and argue this and see if I, can, if, if I can convince you. So here, okay, here we have in a dark blue histogram, this graph over here, this represents data from 1985, and this represents data from 2010, okay? And what we have here is we're plotting BMI. BMI is your, is your weight in kilos divided by your height in meters squared. It's the way to control for your, for, for your size. And we all know that the normal BMI... We can debate what, what that means. It's between 20 and 25. If you're above BMI 25 to 30, you are considered overweight. And if you're above BMI 30, you're obese. Okay? So, so these are the clinical lines that are, that are actually in, in the sand somewhat. You'll see that in 1985, that the average BMI was around 22 to 23. Okay? And which means that the average BMI was not obese. Look what happens in 2010. Okay? And more recent data is now available. Let's look at 2010. You'll see that the average BMI is between 27 and 28. Now, I am happy to do this in front of the crowd because I know what my BMI is. But let's just, for the sake of argument, any, except my wife and my son. So, so um, um, what do you think my BMI is? Just looking at me, looking at who I am. I know I'm not 
a stick insect, but just tell me, what do you think my BMI is? Just shout it out. I'm okay, stop. I heard 126, which is getting close. Okay, so I heard someone say 20. I heard someone say 22. Couple of things. We look at someone and try and think what their BMI is, but it is influenced by the norm around us. Okay? It is influenced by what we see around us. Now, when you, when you just go back, only fools and horses, or whatever program where, uh, uh, back when from the 80s or the 70s, what do we see now when we actually go back and look at them? Everyone was skinny as a rake. This is what we think. Oh my God, they were skinny. They were malnourished. They're not skinny. They were normal for the time. Okay? That's exactly what they looked like. I would like to think, don't say anything, Jane, is, <laughs> is that I am normal for the time. My BMI is 27, okay? which means... I'm overweight, okay? Which means I'm average. And if you look at me, I think you'd agree, I would look like most people out there. I'm not an Olympic athlete, right? I'm not, I'm not Kate Moss, but I, 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 look, I look average. I look like an average human being. I'm an average human being, and the average of, is, is, is overweight, okay? I'm happy, I'm happy to, to tell you, to tell you what, what the reality is. So look, let's go back to my title. Are your genes to blame when your genes don't fit? Now, if you actually look at this graph and what I just told you, between 1985 and 2010, clearly your genes have nothing to do with the shift, okay? Because we have not evolved since 1985. I have no second head, no third bum, right? I only have two bums and a head. So this is, this, this, this is me. And so therefore, the reason why we have become more obese as a population, fatter as a population, larger as a population, is because of the change in environment. Okay, and we, I'm using environment as a hold all to include everything non-genetic. Okay, but if it's only the environment, meaning eat less, move more, eat less, move more, okay, if it's only the environment with no biological influence, then why has this curve not just shifted entirely to the right so that you have a shape that looks like the Golden Gate Bridge, which is what would happen if it has no biological impact and it's all about the environment. That's not what you get. What you get is you get a change in shape of the curve. Now, assuming that everyone alive here, broadly speaking, was alive here, the only way you can change the shape of such a graph is if everybody behaves differently in their environment. And now we begin to think, okay, well, yeah. So some people, for example, may not have gotten fat at all, okay? Somebody would have gained some weight and some people have become enormous, right? So these are the kind of scenarios. And what I would like to argue is this change, this this difference in our response to the environment, to this changing environment, this is what I want to argue is powerfully, biologically, powerfully genetically determined. And the genetic determinants from this, because you know there are many explanations that actually come from it, I would like to argue has come from a lot of it, not all of it, has come from twin studies. Okay, so some of you may have heard of twin studies, but I'll just briefly go through how it works. So we have identical twins which share the same DNA, right? genetic clones for all intents and purposes. And we have fraternal twins, non-identical twins, and they share 50% of genetic material, like you would with your siblings. Okay? So you can take any conceivable trait that could be genetic or have an environmental influence and compare them to twins which were 100% identical and twins which are 50%, and then you can compare the heritability. So the amount of material, the amount of variation within a trait that is actually genetic or environmental. Let me give you an example. Hair color, peroxide aside, ladies, okay, is, is, is likely to be, is powerfully genetically determined. No one's going to argue with me about that, okay? And the environment has very little role, 
very little role. It doesn't matter whether or not you are lazy, you're not, you're intelligent. Your hair color is going to be your hair color when, when you plop out. Okay, that, that, that's the scenario. The other extreme, okay, which has a huge genetic influence, is freckles. Okay, now freckles clearly is, has genetic, genetically influenced. But where, how many, whether they appear, is entirely dependent on whether or not you go into the sun. Okay, on whether or not you wear a t-shirt. So those are two extremes. Okay, when, when you can actually imagine a genetic, con, uh, not condition, a genetic trait with environmental influence. When you do that same math, okay, you actually see that heritability of body weight is actually equivalent to the heritability of that height. And this is, I'm not expressing an opinion here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm giving you unequivocal fact. The data is out there. And no one is going to argue here that height is genetic. Okay, tall parents, tall kids. But yet we know that if we go back 500 years to Tudor times, on average, at, in Henry VIII's times, based on bone lengths and, and, and skeletons, we were on average five to six inches shorter as a species back in, back in Henry VIII's time. Whereas now, we're taller as a species. Why? Uh, better, into, better maternal care, better diet, change in the environment, right? But it doesn't change the fact that if your parents are tall, you are likely to be tall. The same analogy holds true for body weight, except for two key differences. The first is that the changes for body weight happen only over 25 to 30 years. So it's a short period of time within the vast majority of our lifespans okay, that, 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 that are here. So in our heads, we're thinking it can't be your genes because, because, because we've changed through our lifetimes. The second is weight is volatile. Height is not volatile. You don't shrink. Maybe you do slightly, but when you get older. But, but height is volatile. So you grow taller, and if you stop growing, you just stop growing. Weight can shift. Weight can change. So mix time scale, volatility, and then throw in genes and environments. And people get confused. Everyone gets confused. Okay, Mr. Beardy in Cambridge was, was a professor of XYZ in department you know, ABC, right? But yet he could not understand. And I think I'm a relatively lucid person, relatively, you know, when it actually comes, comes, comes to the point when, when we're actually there. So what we now understand, and I'm going to give you some, some, some examples of how your brain controls food intake, because this is what, what happens, is this. This is the general schema. We now know that we have circulating hormones that come from two large organs okay, that signal to the brain. The first organ it comes out of is your fat. And you might think fat is an organ. It is. Okay? It's desperate, but it's an organ. Why is it important that your brain knows how much fat you have? Because how much fat you have is how long you last without food. Okay? So that's a pretty, trust me, 10,000 years ago in the Serengeti, you need to know how long you were going to last if there was no food. Critical piece of information. Number two, it comes from your stomach and your guts. And that information goes to the brain is to tell you what you recently ate and what you are currently eating, okay? which is another important piece of information. So your brain mixes the two. How long can I last if I have no food? What am I eating right now or just recently? And then it influences how you then interact with food the next, the, the, the next time around. Okay? So this is the general schema. I'm going to come back and give you just a couple of examples and not try and bore you guys silly. But there are genetic modifiers throughout the entire process. And it was through the study of genetic modifiers that we begin to understand these, these pathways. So we know, for example, that the so-called leptin-melanocortin pathway okay, is important. And I'm going to give you just two examples. The details here are not overly important, except that leptin comes from fat and is one of the key hormones that signals to the brain that lets you know how much fat you have, okay, molecule number one. And then when leptin gets to the brain, 
the first molecule it hits, the first hormone it hits, is called POMC. Okay? And then there's a signaling cascade that goes down. How do we know this is important? We know this is important because if you disrupt genetically at any stage, whether or not you're a human being or, or, or a mouse, this is my attempt at art here, guys, but, but um, you end up with severe obesity. And I'm going to give you just, just, just a couple of examples. Okay? So this is severe, severe obesity here. So let's start with leptin. How do we know leptin? How do we know about leptin? How do we know about fat? Well, we know because there were naturally occurring mice which were very, very severely obese, and they found out that they were actually lacking leptin. And this is where my colleagues from, from Cambridge, Professor Ratley, Professor Faruqi, what they identified were children with mutations in this gene, leptin. Okay? What does this child look like? You can see here. This is the level of obesity we're talking about. This is a three-year-old who's 42 kilograms in weight. Okay? So now, multiply by 2.2 for pounds. But just for reference, me, Mr. BMI 27, okay, my, I'm 75 kilos in weight, about 175 pounds, okay, give, give, give or take. This kid is more, uh, more than half my weight, three years old. So we're not talking PlayStation-level obesity. We're not talking, you know, go out and, have, and, and run, please, you know, eat less, move more. We're talking severe, severe obesity, okay? So what does this kid look like? He born of normal birth weight, but has hyperphagia after winning, a weaning. Okay, from, from, uh, from Latin, hyper, more, phagic, eat. But it's a pathogenic term. So you can't say, ah, it's Christmas, I'm hyperphagic. Okay, so you got, so, so no, you overate. You overate. Very, very, very different thing. What do I mean by hyperphagia? I mean hyperphagia because these kids have their freezers locked up because they will go after frozen food. Now, they won't eat this table. There's another genetic disease that makes you eat this table. That's another lecture. But these kids will go after frozen food. They, they won't go after things that are poisonous, but they will go after things that you and I would consider unpalatable. But I'll come back to that and give you a scenario in which this is not actually as weird as it sounds, okay? So that's the hyperphagia I'm talking about. Blah, 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 just read this whole thing. A lot of fat. They do not undergo puberty, and they do not, and they have an impaired immune function. They've got a screwed up immune system. Seems an odd couple of things for me to mention in an obesity talk. Why am I talking about this in an obesity talk? Because, as it turns out, it, it gives you an idea behind what it does. When leptin was first discovered, people thought, nope, I'm going to get that to that in a second. Okay, hold, 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 hold that thought. So, leptin is a hormone produced from fat, it circulates. So, my colleagues asked the question well, if you're missing a hormone, can you replace it? The analogy is type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is when your insulin stops being produced, you've got to give yourself insulin to control your glucose, right? So the question is, well, can, can the, we do the same thing with leptin if you don't have leptin? What happens if you give this kid daily leptin like you do with a, with, with, with a type 1 diabetic? This is what happens, okay? This is a 7-year-old weighing 32 kilograms. You wouldn't look at this kid, bat an eyelid in the street because this kid looks perfectly normal. And all the difference between the same child, times apart, but he has daily injections of leptin. Now, the drug companies, can I tell you, wet themselves. They thought all our Christmases all in one go because they can actually now make their billions. But this paper was published in the early 2000s. It's now 2016, and I'm still here talking about it, and you guys certainly have not heard about some magic silver bullet to cure obesity. Okay? And that's the weird thing. The drug companies tried. They gave leptin to all ages, sexes, ethnicities. But in every single case, if you had a functioning leptin gene, so these kids don't have a functioning leptin gene, all of us here have a functioning leptin gene, leptin does not work in us when it comes to food intake. 
which is a weird thing to say because I just showed you that if you give this kid leptin, he was perfectly normalized his weight. And I think this came from a misconception about what leptin actually does. Leptin comes from Greek, leptos, which is thin. And people thought, oh, wait a minute, leptin comes from fat. So when you have too much fat, it signals to the brain to tell you, stop eating, you have too much fat. And that's what we all thought, I have to say. But if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view, why would you have had too much fat? Okay, when, at what point in the Serengeti would you have had too much fat? Um, never, okay, or very, very frequently. So that's not what leptin's role is. Leptin's role is to act as a starvation hormone. It doesn't work when there's lots of it. It works when there's very little of it. Because when there's very little leptin, it means you have very little fat. It means you are starving to death, okay? It turns on the starvation response. What is the starvation response? A, eat. We all know that when we are very hungry, a slice of bread, a piece of cheese, some water tastes like nectar, okay? It's the most delicious thing in the world. We also know that if we're full, we are more picky with our food, okay? Bread and cheese no longer sound so appetizing. Imagine if you were actually starving, actually starving, okay? Would you eat frozen food if you were actually starving? You would, because it would keep you alive. And that's what these kids have, okay? These kids have brains that think they're starving even though their body habitus indicates not. A, okay? B, save energy for number one. Number one is you, but number one of number one, your brain, is this, to make sure you have enough energy to go hunt food, okay? Now, your brain is very, very expensive. Two to three percent of our body weight, okay? But at rest, so you guys sitting here at the moment, 25% of the energy you are producing is feeding your brain. Okay, very, very expensive. So you need to save all the energy for that. What does this do? It turns off expensive metabolic functions. What are those? Reproduction. Number one is very expensive. Ladies, you know every month, lots of wasted calories, right? Very expensive. Secondly, if you're, if you're starving, the last thing you want to do is plop a baby out under the Serengeti because there's no food around because you're starving. This is, this is what your brain thinks. Mother nature does not take chances with human, your, your, your new nature. It shuts off reproduction. The other thing which is very expensive is your immune function, okay? Just, it just is, so it shuts it off. But a starvation hormone, a true starvation signal, has to be reversible, because if it's not reversible, then when you have plenty of food again, then it, you're in trouble, so it's a, stupid, it's a stupid signal. But it is fully reversible. So if we look at this child, A, clearly the food intake is normalized because the child has become thinner. B, the, the seven-year-old is a bad example, but he had, an older, he had an older cousin who was 12 years old at the time, wasn't, had any, didn't have any sign of going into puberty, but after leptin treatment, went into puberty. Okay, now is a, is a, is a mum, is old, you know, and, and, and what have you, perfectly fine, okay? And then immune function, perfectly now fine. So leptin is a starvation signal, okay? We'll come back to that in, in, in a second. So what then happens when leptin signals to the brain? It hits POMC, which I told you about. Now, We've studied mice with POMC, uh, with POMC deletion. We've studied humans with POMC deletion. But I thought I would raise our most recent work. Okay, I don't know if you guys heard about the fat Labradors, you know, and, and, and what have you. And so I, this work was led by a, a vet, um, a vet surgeon that actually worked with us, Eleanor Reffin, who's the model, the model here. The dog is Jasper, a, a Labrador. Labradors are well known to, to, to be obese, uh, well known to be to have a predilection to becoming obese and to, have to be food motivated. I don't know how many lab or if there are any Labrador owners that are actually, that are actually any Labrador owners that, 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 that are here? Oh no, no Labrador owners. Anyway, so, but what we did was we then went and, and, and tried to find out, turns out Labradors have a deletion in this POMC hormone, which I'm telling you about, okay? Now, not all Labradors, so I just wanna give you, so 
roughly speaking, about 22% of Labradors have this deletion. So we found a major genetic cause, okay, but not all of the cause okay, for, for, for its food motivation. So far, so kind of interesting. Okay, well, that's sort of, sort of interesting. Now, what makes the characteristic Labrador? Why, why do people love Labradors? Labradors are by far and away the um, most popular dog pet breed okay, in North America and in the United Kingdom. Okay, every year in the UK itself, a hundred and these are the Andrex puppies, you have to remember, 150,000 new Labrador puppies are registered every year in the United Kingdom. Okay, that's a lot of puppies, okay, every year. Why do you like them? Oh, they're cute. Okay, that's fine. Then they get so not so cute because they get big. But then they, are, they have a lovely disposition and they are very trainable. So we began thinking and we began looking. They're so trainable that guide dogs, okay, guide dogs are largely Labradors because they are very, very trainable. When is the last time you heard of a Labrador dragging a blind man across the street trying to chase a chicken? It never happens because they're so well trained. They're like the Navy SEALs okay, of, 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 the dog, of the dog world. Here's the interesting thing. They're trained with food, ladies and gentlemen. When we look at the percentage of dogs with deletions in this, in Labrador guide dogs, 80%, just do the math up there, 80% of Labrador guide dogs have a deletion in the POMC gene. So here's the thing. They are so food motivated that they know I'm not going to chase the chicken. Because if I do what my master tells me, I'm going to get guaranteed food. And they're trained using Pavlovian, standard Pavlovian ding, 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 bit, bit, bit behavior. And so therefore, we started something about looking and studying feeding behavior. And it morphed into something which I have to say is far more complex as trainability. Okay, trainability is a very, very complex behavior. But if you tie it in with one of our most ancient, one of our most ancient uh, uh, motivations, which is to eat, Okay, you then end up with the concept of trainability. Okay, so now, but that is all what we call monogenic disorders, where we actually have a situation where 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 they have severe obesity, like that kid. Okay, that's not normal. Okay, it's not normal. It provided us with a lot of with a lot of biology, but it's not normal. It doesn't explain the obesity epidemic as I set out at the very beginning. Okay, this is less likely to have one big mutation in one gene but it's more likely to have very many, 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 many little changes that actually go out throughout. Okay, now we now, we now know this. So I'm just going to show you this. You don't have to look at each, each individual gene here. But we now know over 100 of these genes, okay, that actually have a role to play in determining our body weight. And I want you to take away two messages from here. The first is you can see there are two distinct groups. There's a pink group and there's a blue group. The pink group is genes that influence your waist-to-hip ratio. So if you think about this, this is your waist, and this is your hip. And clearly, it represents your body shape. Men are going to have very different waist-to-hip ratios than women, okay, depending on, on whether and your, how big your bum is and all kinds of things that, that are there. There's genetic under, underpinnings for this. And these have to do, as it turns out, with genes that actually are within your fat. So this is where you put your fat. Because if you strip everything, everything down and look at your skeleton, you look exactly the same. Okay, this is the thing. Your shape is de determined upon where you put your fat, broadly speaking. Okay? So this has to do with genes in your fat. But this big blue blob down here has to do with your BMI, which means how big you are, independent of man or female, where you put your fat. So this is how much fat you have. This has nothing to do with fat, as it turns out. Nothing. All of these genes function in the brain, and all of these genes influence food intake. Okay, I'm going to show it to you another way. Here's what we call a Manhattan plot. 
okay, for showing the same data. Okay, this is the same kind of data we would look like, but it's the Manhattan plot because it looks like the skyline of Manhattan. Okay, I'm gonna ignore this first gene, which is what I do work on at the moment. But what you see here is these are genes, remember, where very subtle changes indicate where you actually live, live, live without, not big mutations. So this happens, has been studied in millions of people, millions upon millions. And what do you see here? POMC. And I didn't talk about MC4R, but POMC signals to the MC4R. So what we have here is a situation where this is that same pathway I was telling you about, the leptin melanocortin pathway. In severe mutations, you end up with severe obesity. In mild, little, tiny, subtle changes, which I would say 70-80% of you will have, some, will have many, many of these uh, little changes in your genes, it indicates a very, very subtle change in your body weight. Okay, so here's, here's an example of what, of, what, of what you might imagine. There are two genes from, we have two copies of every gene, one from your mom, one from your dad. Which means that if you have, you can have, you can make a risk score. You can have a maximum of two risk copies of the gene, one or none. So if you have 100 genes, you can make a risk score of a maximum of 200 risk uh, uh, genes or zero. Now clearly that doesn't happen because that's just not normal biology. And what you see is most people have an average number of these risk alleles. But that's not the point here. The point here is, here's 78, here's 104, less than 78, greater than 104. You see that most people have an average number, but if you plot the number of risk genes you have against their BMI, you see a linear relationship. Okay? So the more of these you have, the heavier you're likely to be. This is what I mean by polygenic, okay? where each individual change is too small to measure, but in totem, in all together, you actually end up with a situation where, where, where you, you can begin to influence body weight. The problem, however, it is still a risk assessment and not a prediction. And companies such as 23andMe that are actually out there at the moment, they make huge claims about predicting whether or not you're going to be fat or not, are misunderstanding, fundamentally misunderstanding the difference between risk and predictability. Okay, the, the, the example I always give is one of pregnancy. Okay, now depending on where you are in your life, this is an example I give my students. Okay, clearly the younger you are, the greater the risk or the greater the, the likelihood of you becoming pregnant. Okay, whereas as you get older, until you pass the menopause, your chances go down to zero. And it's a curve, it's out there, everyone knows this. Okay, everyone knows this and everyone knows the curve and everyone knows the percentage of risk. Or, or, or a likelihood. But can you pull a 34-year-old woman off the street and predict how likely she is going to be to become pregnant? No. Why not? You'll say, well, obviously, it depends on her biology, depends on you know, her environment, it depends on any number of things. The same thing is true when we're actually dealing with, with obesity genes. Okay? It gives you a risk, but you cannot actually predict where you actually come from. And, and in reality, people ask me this all the time. Okay? They says, well, uh, okay. So this is now an answer to Mr. Beery, but you're just giving people an excuse, okay? Let's go back to, to, to that argument. And I want to argue no, for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, I study genetics in order to understand biology, which I hope you know, I've been try trying to explain, explain to you. But secondly, I'm just trying to understand how things happen and trying to understand what this risk plays in in your life. And I always use the analogy of assuming or taking your genes like a hand in poker. Okay, you get good hands and you have bad hands, and the only people you can blame for that are your folks. Okay, you can't do anything else. But you can win with a bad hand of poker, and you can almost certainly lose with a good hand of poker, depending on how you play it. It's more difficult. Okay, it's not as straightforward. You have to make different decisions. 
The analogy holds true, okay, for your, for, for your hand in life that you're given and what you choose to do with it. It doesn't mean that it's easy, okay, but there is a way and there's something you can do, there's something you can actually do about it. The last thing, a couple of things before I let you, before, before I open the floor to questions. The dessert tummy. We know the phenomenon. We all heard about the phenomenon. The second tummy, the third tummy, the chocolate tummy, whatever you want to call it. So, so he, he, here's the question. We know that when we go out to have a three-course meal, after two courses, I guarantee you, you would have fulfilled your metabolic requirements for the day. Okay? In other words, you have had the calories, all the calories you need to have, yet you order dessert. Okay? This is a known phenomenon. But if you think about this phenomenon a little more, why does it only work with desserts? Because if, if you were as full, but then they came by with more steak or potatoes. You go, dude, I'm going to puke, right? I mean, it's the same kind of... It's a, but yet, exactly that same feeling where that I'm going to puke feeling, they show you a chocolate cake, you'll eat it. Why? So let's consider this once again evolutionarily. Okay, so imagine 10,000 years ago in the Serengeti, you've gone and you've got the antelope, okay? So you've got the antelope and you're dragging the antelope back, and it's cost you, say, 2,000 calories to bring down the antelope. Now, clearly... If you just used your fuel sensor okay, um, and, and, and said, well, I had, I've, I've used 2,000 calories, so therefore I'm going to eat 2,000 calories, that's fine. But it doesn't guarantee you any buffer. It doesn't give you any buffer because there's no guarantee of the next antelope. So you have to eat more. Okay? So this, this, is, this is the first thing. This, so the, the, I always call it the ooh factor, the, the, the fact that it goes ooh, to make, it, to make eating good, feel good, so that you'll continue eating. But how do you get past the mechanical problem of having 2,000 calories of venison in your stomach? Okay? So now you've got to try and stuff as many calories into a venison-stuffed tummy as you physically can. What do you do? You change the You change different types of food, then begin to tickle your brain. Okay? And these foods are higher in density in calories. Okay? Highly refined carbohydrates, sugars, high in fat, desserts. Okay? So in other words, no longer is a potato, carbohydrate, or protein going to do it because they just are not dense enough in calories. And that is the origin of the dessert tummy, ladies and gentlemen. It's a holdover from an evolutionary time where you had to change the type of calories you want to maximize the amount you can stuff down to make sure you stayed alive for the actual the next time that you were there. So here's the question, okay? Are we then all sinners? The problem with considering food intake in the concept of sin, of vice, okay, uh, when, when you look, it makes one assumption. It makes the assumption that we are in full executive control of food intake. Executive control meaning that we can control our food intake completely. And that's just not true. You have to remember that food intake, as I talked, as I said about, um, talked to you about, has been driven us to be here. We've never had enough, had enough food to eat, and so that is what has driven us all the way till now to actually be where we are. Obviously, starvation had a very, very strong evolutionary control, so all of us respond equally to starvation, okay? Meaning that eat or die, okay? That's a pretty, it's a pretty big hammer. But because we never had enough food, we never had too much food to eat, our response to the environment we have today differs because there was no evolutionary clamp okay, on how we actually respond, re respond to it. And what the biology tells us is some people are going to be slightly hungrier than others. An obese person is not lazy. No, look, okay, let's just, let me just think about this for a minute. Is it easy to stop eating when you're hungry? Sorry, let me start that question again. Is it easy to stop eating when you're not hungry? Of course it is. 
because you're not hungry. You're not going to want to eat. There's no challenge. Imagine Gwyneth Paltrow with her quinoa and six-pack abs and things like that. Okay, she feels, okay, she has a personal trainer and nutritionist. Let's ignore that. But, but she feels less hungry all the time, okay, which means that she just doesn't eat, which is why she's skinny. She has a skinny biology. The problem with an obese person is they have a biology that makes them slightly more hungry all the time, putting them at odds with the current environment, okay, making them want to eat more, therefore making them become obese. Now, before you start hurling peaches at me, there's only one way they can lose weight, and that is still to eat less. But if we do not, if we do not accept the fact okay, that for some people it is always going to be more difficult than others okay, within the current environment that we're in, our public policy will never adjust. Our public policy will never be correct if we have a one-size-fits-all scenario in which we actually try and, and, and fix obesity. Obese people are not lazy, slothful, or bad. Obese people are fighting their biology. Okay, now, people say, well, what can we do about it now? And I've, I've, worked, with, um, I've worked with some of these people in, in, in the past, and I said, look, he says, well, what can I do? What can I do? I said, I'm really sorry. The only advice that I can give you today, currently, is to eat less and move more. The world's most boring, okay? I'm not going to get enough money to get out of the Cambridge ghetto, okay, with that, with that kind of diet, you know, and I'm not here selling a book on my eat less, move more diet. Okay, who's going to buy that book? But it's true, and this is the problem. And this is what I told him. He says, no, but you, you have already helped me. I said, how have I helped you? He says, look, I'm an obese person. I've always been obese. I was made fun of at school. I was bullied at school. You can imagine, okay? Et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that I found it difficult to lose weight because I was, I lacked willpower, because I was bad. He says, I now know that the only way to lose weight is to eat less, but I find it more difficult because of my biology. He says, the understanding that it's difficult not because I'm weak, but difficult because of my biology, is a huge motivational shift. Okay? And that is what we need to understand, and that is what we need to harness as a society if we are to solve the obesity problem. So listen, guys. Tuesday, okay, this is, this is me. A couple of things from this. We have a, a Horizon program that's coming out, coming out on Tuesday. I'm indicating where the problem lies. Why are we getting so fat? The real question should be, why are we eating so much? That was the original title. The BBC did not like that. They said, they said that, oh, but it needs to have fat in the title to have people watch. Okay, well, there we go. So in this, in this picture, I made sure that I showed where the problem was. It's because we're eating too much. And that's where the biology is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you very much for listening. I'm happy to take questions. Oh, wait, let, wait for the uh, lady with the microphone. Uh, hiya. Um, I'm a doctor, so I work now and I'm in second year. But what, how do I tell my patients? You know, it's... Because it's, a lot of them, I feel like, without sounding patronising, they might say, oh, it's okay because, I've because I've, the doctor's told me it's my genes that are making me like this. But how can I help them to, to get over these problems? the problem of their genes, you know, without sounding and with, like, valid advice because we all know it's not going to be good for them. And the other thing is, what I've read, what do we think about that? Like, so do you think that the sugar and versus fat argument is valid and does that have to do with our genes as well? Because it kind of makes sense to me what I have read that, and I've tried it myself a little bit because, as you can all see, I'm not the skinniest break ever. But, like, if I drop down my sugar and I eat loads of butter, I can lose weight that way. So it's, like, a two-sided question. Okay. 
but they're related to, to, to some degree. I'll tackle the first one first. It's the more difficult one. The short answer is I don't have the holy grail for you yet because that's what we're working on. That's what we're trying to solve. Okay? But it's related to the second bit about the fact that you say, oh, but when I, when I you know, reduce sugar, when I reduce fat, something, something changed. I think what is the most useful, we still have to eat less, okay? Let's just, just keep this more. But what is the most useful way is if you can actually understand your own biology. So I understand my own biology. I understand that before I go on my bike to cycle home, if I have a Mars bar, other chocolate bars are available, I get wobbly, okay? So I don't do it, okay? And I, some people understand that if they have too much carbohydrates at lunch, my wife, they, they, then you feel like, then you feel, then you feel like you're gonna fall asleep. Okay, then you've got to fall asleep. So what do you do? Don't eat the carbohydrates at lunch because otherwise I'm going to fall asleep. But is that true for me? No, I eat lots of carbohydrates at lunch and I don't want to fall asleep. Okay? Whereas some other people, that's going to be true. So within that scenario, I think the first thing we've got to do is get away from the one-size-fits-all argument and ask, well, after a while, just think, how do you actually do your food? You know, what diets have you tried? Don't think about the BS diets that are out there. Actual real diets that have some scientific basis to it to actually, and it, not all diets are gonna work for all people, okay? So, that, so that, that's, I think, is how we're gonna have to tackle the problem. I'm sorry I don't have a more concrete answer. The second question of sugar versus fat, and that actually comes down to a question of, is every calorie equal? Now, clearly, from a physics point of view, it is. So, so a calorie that goes poof, a calorie is a piece of, is, is some energy, and so a calorie is a one quantized unit of energy. Okay, so clearly a calorie is a calorie. The problem is one of accessibility of calories. What do I mean by that? Okay, sugar. A hundred calories of sugar is a hundred calories of sugar, okay, when you absorb it because it's your basic unit of, of, of fuel. So when you do it, there's no breaking down to it, you actually do it. A hundred calories, I'm talking about Tesco, just go and pull it off, pull it off the shelf. A hundred calories of sweet corn, and everyone will know you have your sweet corn. Next day, just have a peek down the loo. Clearly, you have not absorbed 100 calories of sweet corn, okay? Yet, if you take that same 100 calories of sweet corn, okay, treat it with alkali a bit, ground it up, make it into cornbread and eat it, you won't be pooping out corn, cornbread. You'd be, you would have absorbed a lot of the calories. So there, in that scenario, we have some part of the answer. There are going to be some calories and all of this is 100 calories, okay? If you just read the calorie box, it's 100 calories. Sugar, you get 100% of the 100 calories. Sweet corn, you get, I don't know, I'm making a number up now, 20%, whereas cornbread, maybe you get 80%, okay? These are made up numbers, but you see my point. So there, in that particular scenario, you then need to start to think about the type of calories that you have. Sugar as a thing is not bad for you. It's our basic unit of fuel. Do not believe the people that demonize sugar for itself. The problem with sugar is its accessibility, A, 100%, okay, which means every calorie counts, and B, the speed at which you can drink it. This is the problem. Okay? You can't, can you imagine drinking a fat shake? No, you can't, it's disgusting. Oh, dude, no, you can't drink fat, you have to eat it. Okay? I'm not saying fat is fabulous either. But sugar, you can mix it in at really quite high concentrations and, 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 and do that. When you do that, there are a couple of issues that occur. Okay? You're not chewing. So all of the hormones that indicate to your brain, I'm eating something now, prepare yourself for it. It's not happening. You're just shooting it down. So the sugar goes right through you, into your intestine, and be begins to be absorbed before your brain knows what the hell's going on. And you might not know it, but what happens to excess sugar? Excess sugar gets changed into fat. Okay, so that's, that's what happens. That's the problem with sugar, rather than sugar being bad, and fat is there. Sorry, I've kind of gone off piece here. But the, 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 the point being, in the sugar versus fat debate, is once again the most boring thing in the world. 
Neither is bad for you. Both are required for life. But if you have too much of either, you're going to get back. Okay? And I think that is the whatever bah, 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 you, you hear, that is going to be the truth. You mentioned obviously genes have a role to play in terms of people actually eating more. Is there also a role, do genes also have a role to play in terms of how quickly people actually make adipocytes and lay down adipose tissue or how much people will lay down fat tissue sort of thing as opposed to, if you mean, just eating the food? Okay, so clearly genes play a role in everything to some degree, all right? I may... I may very well be proven to be wrong later on, and, and we may very well be proven to be wrong later on. But current data indicates, meaning that we look at millions of people and look at the genes in people that are heavier than others, then the genes that appear have nothing to do with fat. That's body shape. All the genes that appear have to do with the brain and have to do with food intake. So on current data, the driving force behind the obesity epidemic is food intake patterns and feeding behavior rather than fat in of itself. Uh, but clearly, there's going to be fat because that's what the other the, the other blob uh, uh, indicated is laying down a fat. Where you put it? Do you have a bum? What 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 you know? What is the wobble factor on the arms, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. All these have powerful genetic influences. There was a question behind. Yep. Hi. Um, you've not spoken much about the actual health health risks involved in being overweight, mm -hmm. and I wondered if there are genes that are involved in people who are overweight and yet very healthy, and genes involved in people who have obesity-related diseases? Undoubtedly, is the, is, is the answer. So these are the so-called uh, metabolically obese. I'm sorry, not metabolically obese. The, the, the obese people who are metabolically healthy. And undoubtedly, there are some that actually, that actually exist out there. There's some debate over, well, how long have these obese people been studied? But undoubtedly, there is a big variation in terms of having some obese people being, be, being healthy, whereas the majority of obese people are not, are not healthy. I think a good example uh, within, so there's gonna be variation and that's gonna be uh, genetically driven. And a good um, analogy for this is, is uh, probably something like cigarette smoking, where although it will kill 50% of people, 50% of people won't get killed. So you can take, you, the problem with that is then you can take the, you can, you can take the argument either way. Uh, well, you know, smoking does not kill 50% of people, right? Rather than smoking kills 50% of people. So that's the kind of argument with, with, with the obesity as well. Now, there's going to be genes for everything. There's going to be genes of whether or not you're healthy or not, whether or not you respond to a specific drug or not, whether or not you respond to a specific diet or not. And that is part of what we are doing now to try and understand, well, there are going to be more than 100 of these genes involved. So what role do these genes then play in your response to tangerines? I'm being facetious. But, but, but as an example, okay, or, or, or not. So I, think, I hope that answers your question somewhat. Question up front. Um, just carrying on from that question, um, uh, uh, genes and general diet. Um, there are a number of companies now out there who are offering genetic tests mm. and will recommend diets on the basis of that, whether mm. you're allergic to milk or you should be having olive oil or, or refined carb not having refined carbohydrates. I just wondered about your view. What, I wonder what your views were on those. So I did a, um, I did a program at the beginning as, as a genetics head, talking head, uh, what's the right diet for you in January 2015, okay? And so I went on, I did my, 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 my shtick as a talking head. Um, 
And then following on from that, we did a couple of, of festivals and things. Then I went, and I was, I'm always curious about these companies. And so I, I was looking into it for um, research purposes. And would you believe one of them, I'm not even going to tell you what, what they were. I, I just clicked on them. And on the front page, they had a quote from me. They put a quote. They put my name. They put the University of Cambridge. Okay. Now, was the quote from me? Yes, it was. Okay. Did I say that? Yes, I did. But the way they did it is something to do with genes unequivocally plays a role in your body weight. Okay, which it does because I've just told you this, right? But they put it in front of this DNA testing uh, uh, um, company, saying like, "This is the reason why you should use us." So anyway, the university lawyers got involved and they pulled it down. But here's the thing: it goes to the risk versus prediction. Undoubtedly, at some point in our life. We will, get to, we will begin to understand the real finer interactions. At the moment, we know of these 100 genes or so. The problem is we have 25,000 genes. Okay? And the problem is we are not um, really sure your difference in lifestyle versus my difference in lifestyle. And I think until we really begin to finally pick it apart, we're not going to be able to do anything predictive. So each of these predictions is probably only ever so slightly better than flipping a coin for it. So my view is at some point in life, no, I'm going to be. I, I will, Maybe 10 to 15 years from now, we may be able to actually get something like that. But at the moment, we're not ready yet. And I, I wouldn't waste your money. Uh, there was another question. Oh, is it, that's right. This. Yes, I, what do you say makes... Oh, we'll wait for the microphone. Thank you. What you say makes enormous sense. But what do you do with someone who's a compulsive eater, the psychological aspect? You don't say to some... When you say to someone who has an alcohol problem, you have to give up drinking. Do you say to someone with compulsive eating, you have to give up eating? Okay, so that's a very, that's a very, this will have to be the last question. I was told when this turned red, I'm going to have the last question. So it's the last. Clearly, there's a difference between, it's an interesting point, actually, and, and this is something which people have a tendency to do. They equate eating to an addiction of some description, okay? Now, you can see why. You can see why, because people do it. Uh, uh, it lights up. If you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, it lights up portions of the brain that do get lit up with drugs of uh, uh, abuse and, and other habitual behaviors. Because why wouldn't it share some of the same pathways? But the big difference with something like food compared to alcohol, compared to anything else, is we cannot quit food cold turkey, otherwise we die. Okay, so, so that, that being, that being a, key, a key point. However, there are definitely people who have two different types of eating. There's compulsive eating. So in other words, there's the eating and not recognizing the signals. That could be one thing. So, Eating disorders is one thing. Okay, there's obviously anorexia, that's ignoring the signals. Then there's something like binge eating, that's ignoring the signals in another way. And those are going to be different, I think, than the actual signals um, um, in, of them, in of themselves. There's also the case, for example, uh, which is of interest, of stress eating or not eating. And we know that the, the phenomenon, half of you will eat when you're stressed and half of you won't. Yet the signal for stress is exactly the same in all of us, but we have two diametric opposites uh, in, in terms of response, and we still don't know why. So I think we're a long way from doing it, but we have to understand all of this. So I don't have a, I'm sorry I don't have an answer for you right now. Um, I think we, I can take one more question, one more question. Okay, what, what, did, what do I think, what do I think about? Sorry. It was the 5-2 diet. Okay. okay, so what, what do I think about the 5-2 diet? I think of all the diets out there, okay, I'm not trying to sell Michael Bosley's book or anything like that, but of all the diets out there, there are many that work, most that don't. Sorry, there's some that work, meaning they help you lose weight, and have some biological basis to it, 
and many that don't. The 5-2 is an easy one to actually try and understand because in effect, it makes you eat less. Okay? So on five days of the week, you eat, you try and eat normally. On two days of the week, you have a very low calorie, I think, depending on which version you do, 500 calories, 800 calories, 800 calories, no carbs, what have you. Um, I think it works for some people. You have to have to, it works for some people both in character, which means that there are some people who are able to focus their energies all into, into two days and find that actually psychologically comforting. Okay? And I think some of you probably know who you might be to be able to focus all the pain in one go. There are other people who prefer to have a fixed change throughout the week so that you can make the change and you're not tempted. Okay? And I think it all depends on, 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 on pers your personality, on who you are and what you are in order to actually re respond to that, I would say. So if you can stick to it, it's a healthy way to lose weight because you're not starving yourself. It's just two days of the week, you have, you have less food. Um, if, you, if it fits, you don't have to buy anything special. You eat your normal food, you just eat less of it two days of the week. If it works for you, try and stick to it. It's not going to work for all people. Okay, given that, I think I'm going to call it a close. Uh, but thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen.